there's something that's going to be happening. And it's going to be an ongoing, substantial work that will impact millions, but will infiltrate every area of the world. And that phenomenon is the church. Now, Jesus said that it will never end. Senior Pastor George Martin begins a new series. The church is definitively essential. Follow along in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, and listen as Pastor Martin dives deeper into the message. As we begin to see so many things, so many developments and ideas and ideologies that develop, we'll find that the church's significance in the earth is diminishing. People are no longer attending worship at alarming numbers. Church attendance is down, and not just in terms of in person. We understand the pandemic has prohibited some from coming in person, but even online. Here's something that we know. Right now here at Amity, two-thirds of our congregation join us online. What we also track is that of the number of those who tune in, on some Sundays, the average time that they spend online watching is less than 20 minutes. Our sermons typically last 30 minutes. So that would say that at the bare minimum, if you didn't want to hear the word, but you feel like we don't have the right worship team and you don't like that song, but at least 30 minutes would say you tuned in to get fed the word of God. So we understand that because of this all out assault, the significance of the church is under attack. But we have to sustain, but also maintain the significance that the church and hold to the belief that the church is God's primary means by which he's accomplishing his purposes in the earth. I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a international building project that is underway. Its plans and its blueprints were developed before the foundation of the world. Jesus himself spoke of this building project in the text that we just read. For he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, here's the thing. There was a groundbreaking ceremony on Christmas. The very first Christmas. They broke ground on this building project. Now, here's the thing. It developed over a span of about three, 33 and a half years of a lifespan, helping to lay the foundation of this building project. Now, the construction began about 2,000 years ago on a hill right outside the city of Jerusalem called Golgotha. And here's the thing. The construction picked up the pace and moved into full swing when the chief engineer, the Holy Spirit, was released on a day we refer to as Pentecost to do this work in and through 
every, every born-again believer. Now, here's the thing. This day-to-day -day operation of overseeing this building project rests with the Holy Spirit. But the laboring in the building rests inside of each one of the believers. Here's the thing. Every born-again believer has been given some assignment on the building project. Some of us have more labor-intensive responsibilities. Others of us have more supportive responsibility. But all of us have been given some responsibility to pitch in on the building effort. Now, the effort that we're referring to is God's building of his church. So over the next few weeks through this series, we're going to look at and establish the essential need of the church and why it's significant. Today, we're going to lay the foundation for the series. And in the weeks to come, we're going to speak to the purpose and the purposes that God has given to his church. In order to do this, we understand some things. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By just a quick observation, we understand that the building project would always be under duress. So there's no change and no surprise to us that today that building project is still under duress because he says that even though the gates of hell will rise up, it will not prevail. The church has sustained through persecution, suffering, through disappointment and sadness that over the years, the church keeps pressing on. Why? Because Jesus said when he started building, he said, it will prevail. It will sustain. And no matter how, the gates of hell come against it, it will prevail. Jesus, when he says this, upon this rock, I'll build my church. He uses the term ecclesia, which is important because as Jesus is speaking, he's saying there's something that's going to be happening. And it's going to be an ongoing, substantial work that will impact millions, but will infiltrate every area of the world. For Jesus says that this good news, this gospel will be preached to all the nations. Then the end will come. We see that happening where the Bible is being translated into every language of the world. In some cases, it's just the New Testament. In other cases, there's a full Bible. In some cases, it just, it's just, it's just the Gospels. And in some cases, it's just the gospel of John. But that this good news of who Jesus is must go to every nation. Now, here's the thing. The, the vital importance of the church may not be read, readily apparent to you. Because you may, because it's always existed, it's always been there. 
So you just say, hey, church is just church. Where are you going? I'm going to church. What are you doing? I'm at church. Where, where have you been? I haven't been to church. But I'm coming to church. So it oftentimes falls short in our purview. But here's the thing. It was so important that Jesus was willing through his sacrificial death and offering of himself to establish it and to begin its building. So hopefully, as we work our way through this series, there'll be an affirmation in your heart of the significance of the church. Because through this series, we hope to define or establish in your heart the definitive nature or the essential nature, which is the name of today's sermon, the essential nature of the church. So in order to do that, let's do this. Let's ask, ask this question and answer the question. What is church? Because Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. I already stated that he used the word ecclesia. It's a, com it's a combined word of ek and klesis. Those two words, ek means ek. It means to be called out. Klesis, rather, is the calling out. So if we put those together, we understand. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my called out ones. Upon this rock, I will build a body of individuals who have been called out of something. When we do our Sunday school lesson, we understand that called out means we were called out of darkness into the marvelous light. The songwriter sings very eloquently that we were called out of darkness. But here's the thing. We see this in Titus chapter 2. Just note this. You don't have to turn. I'm going to read it for you. But if you want to turn there, certainly do that. Because I have a lot of text today. You don't have to turn to all of them unless you just feel good about flipping your pages. I would love it. It's always great to hear pages turning. But I do want you to know, I will read these and I'll give you context. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Here's what it says. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might, here it is, he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself his own special people who are zealous for good works, who are saying, I've been called out of darkness into light, and then stop and say, well, God, why did you save me? Pastor Smith dealt with this last week. He says, what will your legacy be? What will people say about you? What are you doing that when Jesus comes back that he will lean in to you and say, hey, you, well done. There's two operative terms, good 
and faithful servant. Here's another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 and 18. Here's what he says. Paul uh, explained to them, if you go back and read the rest of this, you know that just prior to this, he said, what, does dark, what fellowship does darkness have with light? He talks about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he gets down to verse 17 and he says this. He says, therefore, come out from among them. So now we're starting to understand what Jesus meant because he says, the called out ones, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch that which is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So we understand that Jesus was saying, upon this rock, I will build my called out ones. Those who experience and are born again and experience the transformative nature of the power of the gospel. But there's another term in this text that I want you to see where he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. I need you to help me with this. So I need, if you would, and you don't have to come on stage, I just need for four wives to stand, just where you are, four. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, I got, okay, keep standing. <laughs> now here's something that I, I'll point out. Each lady that is standing is a wife, right? Because by definition, I said all wives stand or, or have the wives that stand and you stood. And so we assume that you are a wife. Amen? Be seated. Now I would like my wife to stand because... I just had some wives stand, but they were not my wife. Jesus used the personal pronoun or possessive pronoun, my, meaning there can be other types of churches, but there's only one that belonged to me because of all the wives that stood and all the wives that are seated, that this wife belongs to me because she is my wife. So he says, upon this rock, I will build possessive pronoun, meaning that there could be all kinds of things going on. But he said, but there's only going to be one church that will be my church. So he says, I will build my church. And he says, the gates of hell won't prevail against my church. It's important. To understand that. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Brother Freeman's got his wife sitting with him. They look good sitting over there. They laid back. He, he's proud of it too. But that's his wife. And I have no claim on his wife. So when we understand, Jesus says, I don't have claim on other churches. I have claim on my church. So that leads us to my first point today, uh -huh. that he didn't just call us out of something. He called us into something. Right. Right. Here's my point. He called us into relationship, right. not religion. Right. See, all of us 
have something in us that worships. We'll find, if we don't have anything around us, we'll find something to worship. Worship cars, clothes, shoes, colors, all kind of things. And the problem is this. He didn't call us into religion because religion can be anything. By definition, religion is anything that has beliefs and a set of practices that follow. Let's say you have a moment with this podium and somehow you feel like it had, it, it had a, 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 a divine impact on you in some way. You begin to say, oh, blessed podium. Three times a day I pray to you. Help me in my matters. That could be defined as religion. But notice he says, my church, because he was not creating for us or for the world another religion because there was plenty of religion at the time. He was coming because we just read because God wanted some sons and some daughters that he wanted to bring into relationship with himself. So here's the thing. When we look at the church and we're defining the question, what or answering the question, what is church? The first thing we understand the church to be, and write this down, the church is the family of God. You should be my sons and daughters. We see this, write this down, Matthew chapter 12, verse 48 through 50. The scene is Jesus is preaching and his mother and his brothers are outside. They say, send word in there, tell Jesus, hey, his mama's out here. Based upon what happened in Canaan, I think she, was, she meant he was going to stop preaching. Because remember, when, when they were at the wedding and they ran out of wine, and she comes to him and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. He says, well, that, what does it have to do with me? She started, as mothers do, she, she, didn't, she didn't deal with him no more. She said, listen, whatever he tell y'all to do, do that. So I think based upon that, she was thinking that he was going to respond. He was going to stop preaching. I said, oh, yeah, where's mom? Tell mom and my brothers to come on in. But here's what Jesus does. He stops just long enough to do this. He says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? But they who do the will of my father. So I want to show you something. We refer to each other in church not because of tradition as brother and sister, but because of what Jesus said right there. We are his family. And here's the thing. I call you Sister Karen because it reminds me. Because we understand human nature. We don't prefer everybody. Be honest. You don't prefer everybody. Just say yes. Just say yes, I, I don't prefer everybody, Pastor. You don't prefer. That don't mean you can't love them. You just don't prefer them. It's like that uncle. You know, when you start putting a family reunion together, you try not to send, that, send it to him. But you know he's going to find out, right? You don't prefer him. But when you see him, say, hey, uncle. Because it reminds you that he's still part of your. So we refer to each other as brother and sister so that we remind ourselves, I don't prefer her, but because she's my sister, I will still love her. So we are 
the family of God. Here's another thing. We find that the church is the household of God. Because here's the thing. We don't want to just know that you've got some distant cousins, some distant people that you don't, you don't really deal with. But household speaks about closeness. So we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19b. There's two of them we're going to draw here, but I'm going to go to B, the B portion first. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, here's what he says. He says, you're no longer, therefore, strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we first, we start there, that we're in God's household. That we feel a sense of connected and closeness, even when we don't know each other as well. Because you are my brother, you're my sister. So the next one we find in this same verse is that we are also citizens of heaven. Because he says there in, that, in the A part of that verse, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, Paul uh, is, is very clear here because he helps us to understand something, that we are in God's family, but we're not in a distant family, we're in a close family. Household of God. So here's something that I want you to understand. You may have asked yourself, Jesus come, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night. He asks, Lord, we know, he says, Master, we know, teacher, we know that you are from God because no one can do what you're doing. He acknowledges that. While they're having a conversation, in verse 7, Jesus stops and says, Marvel not, Nicodemus, that I say to you, you must be born again. There's something that you need to understand about what Jesus is saying. Because he's already, he, he's establishing his, his, his group of called out ones. We understand that he's bringing us into the family of God. And in close fellowship with him and his people as a household of God. But he says to him, anyone that's going to get into this family got to be born into it. And that ties itself to what we just read, that we are fellow, fellow citizens. Because here's the thing. By nature of your birth, you are an American citizen. By nature of having been born in the United States, then you are born of the United States. Here it is. He says you must be born again because in order to become a heaven citizen, you got to be born of heaven. And because the spirit of God came down from heaven and born you again, he now makes you a citizen of heaven. Marvel not that I say to you, you must be. Got to see. Can't you see? You must be born again because this church that Jesus is building is made up of citizens only. Though they've been born of the Spirit and brought into fellowship. Here's another one. So we're answering what is church? The church is also the community of God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We see that in 
Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. This is a church is budding. It's just coming off of Pentecost, and the church is added. And here's what is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse, specifically verse 44 and 45, 46. He says, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continually daily with one another or in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So we see that God, when he lays his foundation, he begins this building project. He shows us the model that the church exists in community. You've been watching videos that said a community is coming based upon small groups. We are a church of small groups, that we exist in community. Yes, we can't know all and every, but we can exist in the community within the community. Amen. Just like this local church is a part of the global community, but, but yet we're locally. We're here connected. So we are the community of God. One more, we are, we, we comprise or we come into the kingdom of God. So we are a part of God's kingdom. We see that in John chapter 18, verse 36 and 37. Jesus is on trial. Pilate is asking him questions. And he says to him, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And here's what Jesus answers. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he goes on to say, because if it was, those who follow me would, would, would fight. But he says, but let me show you. He said, I'm not trying to establish these earthly things. I'm trying to establish spiritual things. Verse 37, he says, and Pilate says, therefore, said to him, are you a king then? Here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this very reason was I born to testify this truth. He said, listen, the fact that I am the king of kings who came into the world, you say rightly that I'm a king. So we understand that every kingdom has to have a king. And if you have a king, then that king has dominion, which then therefore he has a kingdom. So because Jesus is our king, then we comprise his kingdom. And he has dominion over our lives because we were bought with a price. We are not our own. He is the king. Here's one more. We are the army of Jesus Christ. Now I want to do this. I want to honor anyone, any veterans here or active service members. If you would stand, stand please. Amen. And so we don't say this just as a means of just speech, but we say thank you for your service. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Now, because we have military witnesses, and you saw them, they understand that in the military, the military only 
operates with success when it's done on one accord. They have what's called marking time. A ten hut. You live, you live, you live, right, left, you live, you live. Now watch this. They will stand there and mark time till everybody gets on time. Because we can't progress until we're all on one accord. The reality is that if we understand that we're all soldiers in the army of the Lord, then we understand that we have to get behind what God is doing and get on one accord to accomplish a great purpose that he has. And that's scripture because we see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Here's what Paul tells, Peter, uh, tell, tells Timothy. He says, listen, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 4 says, because he says, no one engages in warfare, engages in warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life but that he may please him who enlists him as a soldier. My, my cousin, who, I never, who I've never met, was a good soldier. He was honorably, he was honored upon his death because here's what he did. As a good soldier, his group was marching out into the water and they were told to march into the water. The thing is, he didn't know how to swim. But as a good soldier, being told to march, he marched. And ultimately, he drowned. The difference then, the story I just told, and the one who leads our army, he's not out to get you or put you in a position where you falter, but he uses you with the same grace that he died for you. That wraps up another awesome word. If you're in need of prayer, counsel, or if we can assist in any way, please don't hesitate to ask. If you would like to join, contact us or receive these and other sermon notes visit us at amitybc.org. Until next week, be blessed.